A moment ago, I thought of the phrase in the Psalms, Psalm number eight. It says, from the mouths of children, you have ordained praise. And the reason I thought of that is because I was sitting in front of children who were praising the Lord. And it was a beautiful thing to hear. And I have that privilege every Sunday. Y'all should sit in the front row, right? <laughs> it's a beautiful thing to hear children praising God and uh, lifting their voices in praise to God. And our God is worthy of praise, isn't he? I'd like to have you turn in your Bibles this morning to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. We find ourselves in Romans chapter 9 in the middle of some pretty complex issues and some doctrinal and theological issues that are hard to understand. Paul's argument here is pretty tight and complex at times. And in addition to just the complexity of the argument and the issues, this, this particular issue, when, when we start talking about the sovereignty of God, and then we start trying to understand then how that relates to the, our human responsibility and, and our choices that we make as human beings, that, that can not only be challenging to understand, but it can create disagreement, can create controversy. And there's been all sorts of controversy and disagreement about the meaning of Romans chapter 9. And so I approach this passage with humility, with some trepidation. Uh, I, want to, I want to give not my opinion. I want to give not what people have come together and philosophized and said, here is the best way to understand these issues. Really, my task, my responsibility is to take these words the words that Paul wrote approximately 2,000 years ago, words that I believe that the Scripture teach, words that are inspired by the Holy Spirit. And so because they're inspired by the Holy Spirit, they're not just another man's words. They're the words of God. They're, the, they're God's words speaking through the channel of a human instrument. And so this is Paul writing, and he's he's making an argument here, and he's employing vocabulary, and he's using all of the tools and assets and attributes and skills that, that God has invested in Paul throughout his entire life. But, but God is speaking through him. And the Holy Spirit is guiding and superintending over Paul such that the finished product is the very word of God. It is inspired. It is inscripturated. It is holy. And so... I want to, to the very best of my ability, try to explain, teach, preach what Paul is saying here, which is what God is saying here. And I want to, I want to try to be faithful to that. Even if that means that we get to the end of the passage and we think, wow, that, that's pretty tough. That's hard. Even if that means, I don't know how all this fits together. Yeah, but what about this? But what about this? What about this issue over here? What about this? Paul doesn't necessarily give us all of the answers. He doesn't explain exactly, precisely, in every detail how it all fits together. But he is teaching us some important things here about the character of our God. 
And so not only do we desire understanding, but we also, as God's people, need to desire an openness, right? An openness to receive the word of God. And for some, you know, this may be a, a challenging text and, and, and work contrary to the grain of maybe what you've thought. But we have, to be, we have to allow ourselves to be open to the word of God. And we even have to allow ourselves to be open to the word of God changing what we think about an issue. If, if Martin Luther had never been open to the word of God changing his mind about an issue, then he would have remained in the Catholic Church till the day of his death. And the German Reformation would have never happened. But Martin Luther, in, in bowing before the word of God, allowed previous thoughts about what he thought about God and what he thought about his word. He allowed the word to transform those thoughts. In fact, Martin Luther said at one point, he said, every time we come to the word of God, it is, it is transforming, it is shaking, it is knocking down, it is destroying, it's rebuilding everything. We need to have that kind of humility before the word and, and listen to what it says and allow ourselves to, to really think about what it says and allow ourselves the openness to change our minds on issues that the word of God may be showing us we need a different way. And so in Romans 9, Paul is wrestling with a serious issue, and that issue has to do with the character of God, the faithfulness of God to the promises that he's made to Israel. So God has made covenants to Israel. He's made promises to them. And, but then you face the situation in Paul's day where a great number of Israelites were not believing in Jesus as their Savior. And so in Paul's mind, he wants to wrestle with that issue and, and specifically with the faithfulness of God then. So if God has chosen the Israelite people, to be his people, if he has selected them out from among all the other nations of the earth, and, and we know that he has done that from all the Old Testament witness. And Paul reminds us of some of the blessings that Israel has been given, the, the, the calling as God's child, all of Israel as his child, the, the covenants, the law, the, the patriarchs, the promises, the, the ancestry of the Messiah, all of this traced through the line of the Israelite people, so they've clearly been chosen, they've clearly been blessed, they've clearly been set aside as a special part of God's plan for the ages. But now we face a situation where Jesus has come. He is the anointed one of God. He has come and presented himself to Israel as their Messiah, and he's preached, and he's healed, he's proclaimed, he has opened the eyes of the blind, he's healed the lame, he gave himself up to the death of the cross, and then he rose again on the third day and presented himself to over 3,000 people at the same time, Paul teaches us in 1 Corinthians 15. And now you have the remarkable transforming power of the Holy Spirit in the lives of his apostles, and the gospel going out far and wide, and yet it seems like there's much more openness to the gospel on the part of the Gentile world than there is on the part of the Israelite world in Paul's day. And that's troublesome for Paul. How can the chosen people of God not accept their Messiah? What does this say about God and his faithfulness? And so Paul's wrestling with that. And the first thing he teaches us in verse 6 is that the problem is not with God's word. 
The problem is not with God's word. God's word, his promise, his covenant has not failed. Well, why is that? How can that be, Paul? And so his argument is, if we can think of his argument this way, I think it might help us and trace the flow of thought in Romans 9. Sometimes when people make an argument and your grammar teacher will teach you to make an argument this way when you're writing a paper is you have a thesis and then you have some supporting points, right? And generally speaking, those supporting points are roughly parallel in terms of importance and in the structure of the argument. But what Paul's doing here, his argument is a little bit different in the sense that he states a main point. And then what he does is he continues to unpack that main point with a subpoint, then a subpoint of a subpoint, then a subpoint of that subpoint, then dealing with an objection to that subpoint. It's almost like a better way of picturing Paul's argument is with nested dolls. You know, like these Russian nested dolls where you open them up, you open the big one, and then there's another one inside, right? You deal with that, you open that one up, there's another one inside. You open that one up, there's another one inside. That's almost the flow of thought in Romans 9. Here's the issue, let's deal with that. Well, what about this? Let's deal with that. And it, it continues to get deeper into the issue. And so God's word has not failed. Why? How is that possible? Well, because there's an Israel within an Israel. There's an Israel inside of an Israel. Meaning, there's a spiritual Israel inside of a physical or national Israel. Well, how is that possible? What do you mean by that, Paul? Let's go deeper. Here's an example. We have Isaac and Ishmael. Same father, but one was chosen to be the son of promise, one was not. They're both descendants of Abraham, but one was chosen, one was not. And so what is that already communicating? It's already communicating that it doesn't, what matters is not your ancestry to Abraham. Simply by claiming ancestry to Abraham doesn't cut it. Because there's, there's a work of grace that's happening within the larger picture here. So Isaac was chosen, Ishmael was not. Well, that makes sense, Paul, because Ishmael was the son of a slave woman. Ishmael was Hagar's son. Slave woman, pagan. So it makes sense that God would choose Isaac over Ishmael. Different mothers. One mother was the full wife, one was a concubine, one was a free woman, and one was a slave. So obviously he would, chose, he would choose Isaac over Ishmael. Paul says, no, let's go deeper. Consider another example, the next generation. You have Isaac and Rebekah, they're married, and Rebekah is not from outside the family. She is chosen from within the family, the larger family of Abraham. And, and so she becomes Isaac's wife, Isaac and Rebekah. So nothing wrong with the father of the mother in terms of God's plan, what he's doing. They, Rebekah gives birth to two boys. So she's carrying twins in her womb, meaning that basically under the exact same circumstances are these two boys going to be born. One is going to be chosen. One is not. Okay, so it's not ancestor to Abraham. And then in the example of 
Jacob and Esau, Paul rules out a number of other potential qualifications that might make God choose one over the other. Maybe it's the parents. Well, it can't be the parents because they had the same parents. So that's not the issue. Well, maybe it's the birth order or position or human rank. And God says, no, it's not that either because I'm going to choose the younger, not the older. Well, maybe it's how good they are. Maybe, maybe it's their character. Maybe it's what they've done. Maybe it's their merits. And God says, no, uh, it's before they're even born. Before they're born, before they've done anything, before they've had a chance to do good or evil, I'm choosing the younger over the older. It's going to be Jacob, not Esau. Well, what about, okay, they haven't done anything yet, but God, you know the future, so maybe you've seen what they are going to do. And Paul says, no, it's not on the basis of works at all. So it's not just the fact that they haven't been born yet. It's not on the basis of works at all, either present or future. Well, maybe God sees their faith. And Paul says, no, it's not on the basis of the one who works. It's on the basis of the one who calls. So it's not works versus faith. It's works versus the divine call. So, Paul, what you're saying then is that God's election is based on nothing but God. And Paul says, that's exactly what I'm saying. It's the electing purpose of God. One of the key issues that arises in the interpretation or understanding of Romans 9 is who is being elected and what are they being elected to? That's an important consideration. Because one of the arguments about Romans 9 is that what Paul is dealing with here is not election unto salvation. And he's not talking about individuals and their eternal destinies. Some would argue what what Paul is dealing with in Romans 9 is he's dealing with larger historical purposes of God and peoples in general, in terms of nations, peoples. And more for historical purposes, not eternal destinies. So they would make this argument. They would say, no, when you, when you bring up the issue of Isaac and Esau, or yeah, uh, Jacob and Esau, Paul, isn't that just, we're just talking about nations there, aren't we? So out of Jacob arises the 12 sons of Jacob, they become Israel, and out of Esau comes Edom, they become the Edomites. And so Paul, aren't we really just talking about the choice of one nation over another nation? So we're not talking about individuals, we're talking about peoples, and we're just talking about their role that they play in history. That God, you've chosen in history to use the Israelite people and not the Edomite people. And that's all that means. And so they would make that argument all the way throughout Romans 9, that in all of these examples that Paul is using, they would say that those are just historical situations, and that has more to do with God's dealings with Israel as a nation. He's not talking here about individuals and their eternal destiny. Well, here are some things to consider. One, if if that's true, then what Paul says in Romans 9 verse 3 makes no sense. What does Paul say in Romans 9 verse 3? I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. 
accursed. That is an eternal destiny. So Paul is saying, I wish that I could become accursed so that my Israelite kinsmen would not be accursed. That's dealing with issues of salvation, is it not? And also, if if Paul is dealing with just corporate peoples, like Israel versus Edom, and just historical purposes, then what he says in verse 6 doesn't make sense. When he says, there's an Israel within an Israel. Why distinguish an Israel inside an Israel if we're just talking about Israel as a people? And also, when you get toward the end of the passage of chapter 9, you see in, for example, in verse 24, he says, Even us, whom he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. So he's not dealing with just Israel, he's also dealing with Gentiles. And how this fits into the plan of God. And when he's talking about the call of God here, he's talking about the call of God into salvation, isn't he? That's why in verse number 30 and following, he talks about the unbelief of the Israelites. And if you see that Romans 9 through 11 is all one core section and is establishing a single argument, then you can see in Romans 10 that he's clearly dealing with salvation. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. In chapter 11, he's clearly dealing with the salvation of Israel. Romans 11, verse 26, he says, And in this way, all Israel will be saved. So he's talking about salvation. He's talking about the the destiny of individuals, whether Jew or Gentile in the eternal plan of God with regards to their their individual soul. So Paul is dealing with election unto salvation, the election of individuals unto eternal salvation. And if that's the case, then on what basis then is is God electing individuals unto eternal salvation? Well, that's what he's dealing with in verses 6 through 13. It's not ancestry. It's not human merit. It's not who your parents are. It's the promise of God. It's not what good you've done. It's not what future faith God might see. It is based on the according to electing purpose of God. In order that God's electing purpose might stand. So God is unconditionally, that means without conditions, without qualifications, without any merits on the part of people, God is electing people unto salvation out of his own will. That then brings up a potential objection that Paul is wrestling with in verse 14. That was all introduction. And you're all thinking, oh man, we're in, we're in trouble. Because now we get to our text this morning, verses 14 through 18. So, Paul, what you're saying is if God elects people on the basis of his own will and not on the basis of anything in them, then doesn't that make God unjust? That's his, he's anticipating an objection here. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. 
Not at all. In fact, this, this not at all is the strongest negation that Paul can use. Me genoita. It is, may it never be. The King James translates it, God forbid, to express the immensity of this negation. In other words, don't even, don't even think that. Could it be possible that God is unjust? That, that should not even ever at any time enter into our thinking. May it never, ever be. Very strong negation. So God is not unjust. He is not unfair. Why? How, how is God not unfair? And now he quotes from the Old Testament. He quotes from the passage in Exodus 33 that we read a little bit earlier in the service. He says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not therefore depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose that I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy and he hardens whom he wants to harden. Let's think about what Paul says in verse 15. So the issue then is God unjust. He's clearly negated that. God is not unjust. Well, why? What's, what's the reason for that, Paul? And here's what we need to think about. What determines whether God is just or not? You ever think about that? Because one, one of the problems with Romans 9 that a lot of people wrestle with is this very issue that Paul's wrestling with in verses 14 through 18. They feel like if, if God is electing people without any consideration of what might be happening in them, in other words, if, if all of the choice, 100% of the choice, is totally, fully from God's side, they feel like that is somehow unjust. And that is not fair to every single person. So, again, the question, who determines the justice of God? Who determines whether or not God is fair? How would we know what justice is without God? Who is the very definition of justice? Who is the greatest exemplar of justice? Is it not God? If it were not for God... And his moral character, his perfect, infinite moral character, you and I would have no concept of justice at all. You and I would have no understanding of what justice is because all of our moral understanding of justice is a remnant of the fact that we have been created in the image of God. 
So even for unbelievers, even for people that are not Christians, that don't believe the Bible, they still have a sense of justice of what is right and wrong, of what's fair and unfair. Where does that come from? It comes from the image of God in us. And even though that sense of justice is often wrong and twisted and tends and bends toward our favor, in other words, that sense of justice is twisted and often sometimes it's, it's applied in selfish, self-serving ways, but that sense of justice is still there, isn't it? it it's, it's broken because of the fall, but it's still there because the image of God has been marred but not totally destroyed in, in us as sinners. So who is the best determiner of whether God is just or not? God. God. And if somebody is going to say to God, God, you are unjust, then essentially what you're doing is you're saying, my view of justice, my view of fairness, my view of morality is better than and higher than God's. Again, as Paul would say, may it never be. It's impossible. So how does Paul defend the justice of God? By simply doing this. By simply quoting God's words from his own mouth. Right? That's what he does. So he brings these words of God to Moses from Exodus 33. And as God is about to show his glory to Moses, as he's hiding away in that cleft of the rock, and in the larger context of God trying to deal with a rebellious and stubborn people who have just broken the very first and second commandments in worshiping a golden calf, God is revealing to Moses a fundamental aspect of who he is in his character and a fundamental aspect of God's character, of his being, of who he is in his core is God's sovereignty to dispense mercy and compassion on whom he wills. In other words, what God is saying to Moses in Exodus 33 is, I am going to proclaim my name, the Lord, Yahweh. And here is the core of what my name represents. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion, and I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. So what's Paul's conclusion or inference from this verse 16 it does not therefore depend on human desire or effort but on god's mercy the word there in verse 16 human desire is sometimes translated will so what paul is saying is it's not dependent on the the will the willingness, the desire, the higher aspirations of, the longings of human beings. If, if our salvation were left to our own willing, desire, longing, aspiration, 
we would all be doomed. So it doesn't depend on our human willing, desiring, longing, aspiring. Nor does it depend on human effort. What is that? That that goes beyond the thinking, doesn't it? So the first has to do with thinking. Willing, desiring, longing, aspiring. But the second one is the actual doing. In action. So good works, actions, helping, giving, loving, doesn't depend on that either. What does it depend on? God's mercy. God's mercy. And and here's where I think that, and I'm going to finish our time here because I I don't want to rush through the last couple of verses of this passage. Here's what I think we need to wrestle with in this passage, in Romans 9 as, as a whole, but also in this specific passage in verses 14 through 18, when he's talking about the mercy and compassion of God and his sovereignty to, to dispense that mercy and compassion as he wills. Here's what we need to wrestle with. What does it mean for God to give us what we deserve? If God were to give us all what we deserve, what would that be? It'd be hell, wouldn't it? So before we can start talking about salvation, before we can start talking about the mercy of God, before we can start talking about, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and compassion on whom I have compassion, we have to wrestle with this, that if God had not demonstrated any mercy, we would all, 100% of us be damned to hell. Now that's strong language, but that's biblical language, isn't it? We would all be condemned. And I'm convinced that until we grasp that by the grace of God, we, we will not understand the gospel. I don't think you can understand the gospel and fully receive the gospel until you see that. That I deserve hell. My selfishness, my lust, my envy, my jealousy, my hatred, my violence, my theft, whatever it is, all of that deserves hell. My laziness or unwilling to act when I see somebody in need, that deserves hell. My longing for my own comforts, my own desires, my own, myself being at the center of my own universe, that deserves hell. Until we grasp that, we can't grasp the mercy of God. I'm going to give you this illustration, and I, I'm probably going to butcher it and not give it perfectly, but this illustration comes from R.C. Sproul. I remember reading it at one point in one of his books, but he was trying to explain the difference between fairness and mercy, and he used this as an example. There's a professor who has a class of students, and the students, they're, they're writing, there's a term paper that's due. And so there's, there's a, a few students 
who do not get their term paper in on time. And so the professor says, I will extend some grace to you, right? And I'll give you some extra time to get your paper done. So what, and, and I won't penalize you for that. So what, what happens next time there's a paper due? Well, the next time there's a paper due, half the class doesn't have their paper due on time. And so professor says, okay, I, I, will, I will extend some, some grace to you and, and you can have a few extra days to get your paper done. Well, the third paper, the last paper of the class, everybody comes in and how many has it done? You know, maybe one or two. But the, the vast majority of the class, almost the whole class, nobody has it done on time. And the professor says, okay, I want you all to turn in what you have, and if you don't have anything, it's a zero. And everybody starts arguing and battling with the professor. That's not fair. That's not just the professor says, no, it, you're right. No, it, it is just. But what wasn't necessarily fair was the two times previous when I gave you mercy when I didn't have to. See, what I could have done last time is I could have given all those that didn't have it done on time a zero. And the time before that, I could have given all those that didn't have it done on time a zero. But I decided to give mercy who decides whether I, I can give mercy or not? Well, that, I decide that, right? So I decided to give mercy. But now I'm requiring justice. There's nothing unfair about it at all. You simply assumed and presumed upon my mercy. Jesus gives a great example in the parables in Matthew when he gives the 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 story of a man who hired out some workers. He had a field that needed to be harvested. And he hires out some workers. He finds some workers and says, you come in and I'll pay you a day's wage for a day's work. And so they, they say, fine, we'll, we'll come in. And so they all come in and they, they work. And then later on in the day, the owner sees, I, I've got much more work that needs to be done. And so I need to go out and find some more workers. He goes out and he finds some people lollygagging around in the middle of the afternoon who haven't been working all day. And he says, what have you been doing? I need some more helpers. Come on, come and work for me for two hours and I'll give you a day's wage. And so they say, okay. So they come and they work for the last couple hours of the day. And at the end, they all line up and he goes to give them their day's pay. And he goes through first with the ones who have been there all day and he gives them their day's pay. And they're thinking, Hey, wow. Uh, or no, actually, it's the other way around, isn't it? So first, he goes to the ones who had only been there a couple hours. And he says, here's your day's pay. And the other ones who had been there all day think, hey, we're going to get more, right? Because we've been here all day. But he gives them a day's wage. And they start to complain, right? They complain, they argue, they quarrel. That's not fair. We've been here all day. And the owner says, isn't that what we agreed to? Is that unjust? Did I somehow defraud you based on what I told you, promised you I would do? No. But I decided to be generous and compassionate, magnanimous to these that I hired for a few hours at the end of the day. 
So are you begrudging me my willingness to show compassion to those that I want to show compassion to? And so all of us as human beings, we, we tend to have this idea of the sense of fairness that everybody receives the same. Everybody gets the same. Everybody has the same opportunities. Everybody has everything the same as everybody else. But the problem is, is that doesn't fit with Scripture. It doesn't fit with the justice of God. And that also has no place in the demonstration of the grace or the mercy of God. So for us to really start to understand God's mercy and compassion, we have to start at ground zero, right? Which is ground zero, fairness, level playing field is we all deserve hell. Only once we have that established firmly in our minds can we even then begin to comprehend the superabounding, generous mercy and compassion of God that goes over and above that. So how should we conclude a message like this? Well, we're not fully done with it yet, but we're going to stop here. My exhortation is simply this. Let God be God. Let God be glorified in being God. And may we be praiseworthy and thankful for God being God. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we come before you and we express just humility, Lord, and and a brokenness before you that left to ourselves, we would be lost and without hope. We were dead in trespasses and sins. We were lost and had gone our own way. And yet, Lord, you sent your son to lay down his life for us. Even while we were still sinners, you showed your love by sending your son to die for us that we might have life. Father, you breathed new life into us. You opened our eyes, gave us eyes to see, gave us ears to hear, gave us an open heart to be receptive. So Lord, we just desire to praise you and thank you for your abundant grace. God, give us wisdom to understand more of who you are. Give us a humility to bow before you the sovereign, holy Lord. And may we with all of our hearts, all of our desires, Lord, long to love you and serve you for all of eternity. May you be praised and glorified, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.